Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to see everyone through through the uh, intranet, internet, the waves, the clouds, uh, whichever way you're connecting. I uh, hope you're having a good cup of coffee this morning, uh, enjoying the uh, pre-holiday weekend. Uh, this is Indigenous People Weekend on Monday, so if you're off, uh, enjoy the beautiful fall weather. Uh, we have uh, our usual Friday morning session with Dr. Shriver. He's going to give us an update uh, on the pandemic and where we are right now. Uh, some troubling numbers that I'm sure he'll share with us and, and give us his advice uh, for how to take care of each other during this difficult time. Uh, we will make it through, that's for sure. We've all, we have, uh, it's been a number of months and uh, I think we, the second wave that's coming our way, will take care of it, we, we, can, we can do it, so hang in there. Uh, we will also have today uh, two uh, uh, individuals, uh, 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 Jay Siklik and, and Patricia Morell, who uh, are from the Cin Center for Children's Advocacy. I work with Jay quite a long time. Uh, Jay has been a strong advocate for, for children here in Connecticut and beyond. Uh, even those kids that are uh, immigrants, sometimes uh, with, without necessarily the papers that they have and they need. And, and he's been a strong advocate for human rights and everything we need to do to keep our any child, no matter where they're from, safe, especially in this era of the pandemic, which has created some real challenges. Uh, so again, thank you for everything that you're doing. Hang in there. Uh, we'll make it through, and I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Schreiber to come up and give us the state of the state of COVID, and then we'll ask uh, Jay and, and Patricia to give us an update. We'll have questions at the end. If we can't get to your questions, we'll answer them online. So uh, have a great weekend, and I'll, I'll catch you at the end of the hour. John? Uh, thank you, Juan. Uh, as always, it's great to be here. Um, welcome everyone watching today um, from Connecticut and beyond. Uh, there's a lot going on with COVID-19 uh, all over the world and in the United States. Uh, I wish I could say there wasn't, but there is. We're going to run through it today. And, um, and then I think uh, I'm going to come back in the next session, next couple of sessions, and uh, go over with you where vaccines are, because I think uh, at the end of the day, that's where we're going to have to rely on. Now, there's a resurgence going on in New England. Um, all, every state in New England is up. Uh, Rhode Island is above 10 new cases per 100,000. But this is where Connecticut is. And you can see uh, we've more than doubled the daily cases uh, over the last weeks. We, we did quite well over the summer. But we're approaching around 400 cases a day in mid-October. And uh, it's not where we want to be. Uh, it's my belief, and, and I think Dr. Salazar and others share this with me, that this is going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to increase. Schools are open. Um, I think uh, people are a little tired of everything and perhaps uh, letting up a bit on their, on their safety. And so we know this is going to increase. But it uh, reiterates our need to just kind of hang in there a few more months, a few more months. But we, we are uh, heading to a place where we don't want to be. Now, um, deaths are flat, and this is wonderful news, but remember, deaths lag any resurgence by several weeks. The incubation period's a couple weeks. It takes a couple weeks for people to get sick, and they end up in the hospital, and so deaths lag. And unfortunately, we know this will be going up in Connecticut in the next coming months. Now, hospitalizations in Connecticut are up. Uh, this is varying day by day. This is a day or so ago, Hartford the New Haven area, New London, uh, also had a fairly significant increase in COVID-related hospitalizations over the last uh, few days and weeks. So again, something to watch. It reflects, as I said, the doubling of cases, new cases per day that we've seen um, over the last few weeks. And um, unfortunately, we're going to need to continue to double down. Now, our neighbor to the north, which is quite much bigger than we are, six, seven million people in Massachusetts is also in resurgence. It's mostly on the eastern part of the state. And these two curves came off their website. They've gone from about 1% total positivity of tests to 1.7 to 2%. But more concerning is the percent of tested individuals who are positive is approaching 5% in Massachusetts. So. Uh, again, a challenge uh, as people travel back and forth across the border, you know, what do we do when Massachusetts approaches 10 new cases per 100,000? So we have some challenges in New England ahead of us. 
The United States um, is uh, also uh, in a challenged place. Uh, I know we're distracted by a lot of different things um, going on, hurricanes and elections and politics. But the reality is we have 50,000 new cases a day in the United States. It's an enormous number. Uh, it's preventable. It should not be happening. We know what we need to do. We know that common public health measures, such as wearing a mask and physical distancing, not opening the bars right now, uh, prevent widespread spread of COVID-19. And unfortunately, we've devolved into a state-by-state -state model where um, there's a tremendous variation in how we're managing our public health measures. This is being driven by enormous number of new cases in the Midwest um, and continues to challenge the United States. At this rate, um, we'll probably, uh, if we continue to sort of muddle through this in the coming months, we're heading to 400,000 mortality for this pandemic. We're at about 210,000 now. Um, we're, we're around 1,000 deaths a day in the United States. Again, um, in my opinion, uh, this should be around 100. 150, 200, uh, if we had widespread um, national measures uh, to uh, abort this pandemic. But this is where we are today, 1,000 COVID-related deaths a day. Now, what's driving this in the United States? Sure, we have a modest resurgence going on in New England, um, maybe more than modest, but what's driving it is the Midwest. This is Wisconsin, uh, which is a big state and Wisconsin has 2,000 new cases, two to 3,000, now 3,000. I'm looking at this new cases a day as of yesterday. It's an enormous number. It's driving, if we have 50,000 new cases for the whole country, this is 3,000 of them just in Wisconsin. And their death rate is going up. They're very stretched in parts of the state where every bed is now filled. And I wanna show you this. This is um, important as you watch the pandemic. You know, we look at the Connecticut map um, this is the Wisconsin map, and it's very interesting because this, this epidemic in Wisconsin actually started north up in Green Bay uh, where there are less people. It's more rural up there, and um, uh, you can see how, how uh, widespread this outbreak has been in the north, but most of the people in Wisconsin live in Milwaukee and Madison, millions of people. This is spreading south. So uh, unfortunately, Wisconsin's going to get worse before it gets better. It's a large state, and... Um, this is gonna to continue to drive numbers. Now, the Dakotas are very similar to this. Um, Iowa, uh, a lot of the Midwest states are in, in similar, very difficult situation now with the pandemic. Now, unfortunately, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has overruled the governor from uh, allowing him to have shutdowns uh, to try to control the epidemic. So once again, um, politics has gotten in the way of public health measures to prevent new cases and deaths. Just is what it is, where we are. Now let's move on. Um, so that's unfortunately the news that you're gonna hear today. Um, uh, the United States is not where it needs to be, it's getting worse. Uh, and our um, policies nationally are uh, not consistent. Now, um, I think there obviously is light at the end of the tunnel. We know we just need to get through the winter. We know in the sp by this spring, there are gonna be several vaccine options. And this was a paper that just came out in the New England Journal. It's very important because the worry is the vulnerable populations like the elderly tend not to make great antibody titers to vaccines. And they're giving the Moderna RNA vaccine, which I know we've talked about previously and you've heard about. Uh, in this trial, they gave it to elderly uh, over 71, 56 to 70, et cetera. And you can see on the far right uh, that the, particularly the high dose vaccine in the elderly was quite immunogenic. And they got um, neutralizing antibody titers similar to convalescent serum. So this is very good news. And, and this vaccine may have efficacy in vulnerable populations. And there's always the worry about that. This vaccine has a lot of side effects, but they're minor. Uh, this didn't come out very well, but it mostly on the right is after the second vaccination. After one dose, you know, it may be a sore arm. After the second dose, the blue tends to be side effects. And most of the serious side effects were a flu-like illness for a day or so. Um, fatigue, flu-like illness, arthralgia, things like that. So it's pretty common to have um, sort of low-grade flu-like symptoms for a day after the second dose of the Moderna vaccine. 
just something to, to consider as we move forward, deciding come winter and spring, which vaccine we're gonna be using for us um, in the state, in schools, um, in hospitals, and for healthcare workers. Once again, hydroxychloroquine reared its head. There was a flurry of, of uh, newspaper articles by physicians who are still saying that hydroxychloroquine works and why didn't they give it to the president and we should be using it and there are all sorts of flurry on social media. So I thought, you know, when in doubt, find the data. Well, there was actually a new paper yet again. I'll show you yet again another paper. In this one, they gave it to healthcare workers as prophylaxis. Um, versus a placebo who were, they were going to be exposed to COVID and came out September 30th in JAMA Internal Medicine. And what do you think they found? No efficacy. Didn't work at all. I mean, zero efficacy. So let's put this to rest. Um, hydroxychloroquine probably is not useful. I would say it's not useful. Not probably. It's not useful. And in this study, you can see that um, the left were hydroxychloroquine recipients, the right was placebo. Uh, there was no difference in positivity um, in these healthcare workers who were prophylaxed with hydroxychloroquine from the placebo. Now you heard a lot about monoclonal antibodies, Regeneron and Lilly, and all of a sudden their stock's going up and uh, uh, the flurry of what the heck this is and it's magic. And well, look, these are, let's, what is it? So Regeneron humanized mice. These mice um, have their immune systems knocked out and it's replaced with a human immune system. And this has actually been discovered for probably 15 years now. There have been humanized mice with human immune systems. They are immunized with COVID spike protein or actually the virus. And then monoclonal antibodies are made and hundreds were screened from these mice. Remember, these mice make human antibodies. It's great. So they're human antibodies and they're screened by the hundreds to determine what has the best activity in binding to the virus. They also looked at some antibodies from humans after infections. They don't really tell you which is which and, and you can't tease it out quite yet. But they came up with two potent anti-receptor binding domain spike protein antibodies. So these bind to the exact place on the spike protein that binds to ACE2 receptor. And they pick two, and the goal is you don't want to have emergence of resistance, so they have two separate sites targeted by two separate monoclonal antibodies. A phase one trial was completed, phase two and three are in progress, and I can't find the data, they're not published, but the company came out with their data. It's not peer-reviewed, it's a press release. They have randomized and placebo-controlled 2,000 people so far, and they pulled out data from 275 patients. So what we know so far is that the Regeneron monoclonals reduce viral load, particularly in patients who are seronegative to start. Some patients have a little bit of antibody to COVID. Maybe it's cross-reactive with some other coronavirus. And um, they do okay, apparently, do a little better. But if you have no antibodies at all, this uh, monoclonal uh, cocktail reduces the viral load significantly. And apparently, um, if you have low antibodies and you get the antibody severity of illness was reduced, there's less in time to improve symptoms in non-hospitalized SARS-CoV-2 infected patients. At the moment, I, maybe I'm wrong as of tomorrow, but today I, couldn't, I can't find a peer-reviewed data-driven paper on this, but this is the data we have so far. And you're aware the FDA is now allowing compassionate use of Regeneron as of I think yesterday. So um, this is what we know about it. If it works, fantastic. Um, I'd be the first to be thrilled. And uh, maybe it does. Um, more updates. Um, the worry continues about women who become infected with SARS-CoV-2 and the outcome to the fetus. And this is a very nice paper that came out of Boston Children's and Boston Medical Center, I think a few days ago, a week or so ago. And they find that the, the virus spike protein, in fact, does bind to the placenta, but doesn't seem to get through the placenta to the fetus, which is very important information. So here they found on A, the dark COVID one, our placental cells that are stained for spike protein, and they're clearly positive, and, and ditto with B below. So the um, virus expresses glycoprotein, a spike glycoprotein in placental tissues. 
However, it doesn't appear to get through the placenta to affect the fetus, which I think are very important, very important data. However, um, you know, there's always an exception, and this just came out from uh, Italy, where they documented vertical transmission of SARS-CoV-2 with negative effects on the newborn uh, from a mother who was infected. So the message I'm going to give is it doesn't seem to most commonly will not get to the fetus. So most commonly we seem to be protecting the fetus, the placenta is doing its job. Uh, however, there are case reports now of fetal infection and vertical transmission of SARS-CoV-2. So I think we're going to need to continue to be cautious. It's not going to be common, but it's not going to be, you know, we're going to need to be careful and try to prevent COVID infections in pregnant women if we can. Mortality data. We're getting more and more good data on this. Um, these are data from Italy now that they've had time to analyze all their data, and it's, it's, it really reinforces much of what we already know. This is a survival uh, curves of patients who got sick enough to go to the ICU, which is always a bad sign. And uh, if you were less than 64, you did pretty well. Um, you had about 80% chance, 75% chance of doing okay. However, if you were more than 64 years of age, you were significantly more likely to die. And the survival probability is not very good if you're over 64 and you end up in the ICU. So. We knew this, but now the data are made getting very concrete on this. And comorbidities were highly linked to mortality. The same ones we know, but now these data show the significance. Hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, heart disease, diabetes, less so malignant neoplasm, but there's still some increased risk there. So you can go down the list and see um, the comorbidities are highly linked to mortality. Uh, with COVID-19, and now we have data showing statistical significance, and we haven't had that so much before. And this is measuring the linkage of comorbidities to death in the ICU. All right, what are we going to do for the holidays? What do we do for the holidays? And, you know, I, I get questions. I know Dr. Salazar is. What do we do for Thanksgiving? The whole film is going to come, and we'll hang out and wear masks, or, or you know what, we're not going to wear masks because we're all related. It'll be fine, right? Um, so this is interesting. Data, right? Get the data. So CDC and MMWR just came out with this, and they, they looked at this. So there was a family gathering on, the, on my left. Fourteen relatives shared a house for family gathering, and they, they kind of did some COVID prevention stuff, and uh, kind of. And they had a teenager join them who was tested and was negative. And then they said, great, we're good. That was the high-risk spreader, and, and then we're fine. Well, it turns out that teenager was tested, was negative that day, but became positive a day or so later and infected the entire group. So, so uh, in fact, uh, it says here 20 relatives and, uh, and uh, 14 relatives shared a house. 11 relatives uh, of the teen uh, got COVID-19, so pretty high attack rate. 50% of everybody in the house got sick. However, there were six relatives who stayed outside, uh, wore their masks, and they, they, they participated in the family gathering, but they didn't go in the house. And they did what they're supposed to do. None of them got sick. So what are my suggestions <clears throat> for the holidays? <clears throat> Follow the data. The data would suggest that even if you're related, bringing everyone together inside is probably not a great idea. And, and even testing everyone won't make it 100% because that test is just good for that day. Someone could still be incubating. Being outside, it's going to be cold, um, but being outside, wearing masks, physical distancing will work. Um, and so this is what we're left with. I, I wish I could tell you that it's going to be normal holidays. These will not be normal holidays. We're going to need to maintain vigilance, and perhaps this will be the holiday that all of us have a little bit of outside gathering. We do virtual. We do all the things we need to do at the tail end of this pandemic to get us through it without getting sick. So this is from MMWR just a day or so ago. And, and again, it shows even our best intentions of testing a few people before a family gathering may not be uh, 100% and uh, could result in a lot of people getting sick. The next data, again, more things that we're learning. Um, Persistence of symptoms, uh, these are data from France. And um, it looks like a large number of patients remain symptomatic at 60 days. And what do I mean? If you look at the far right, my right, 
60 days, D date says D60. You can see that fever's gone and almost 100% no fever anymore. About 7% were still short of breath, 13% had chest pain, 21% still had flu-like symptoms, aches and pains, tiredness, weakness. A lot of them had GI symptoms. Diarrhea and digestive symptoms were very common, 30% still had that. Weight loss was common um, and disturbance in taste and smell continued in 22.7%. So the residua from infection appears to last uh, at least a couple of months in a fairly large minority of patients. Obviously, we're gonna need to follow this out farther and, and see what happens, but I think these are important data. The CDC has changed the airborne spread warning for the third time, uh, most recently, this is what's on their website. COVID-19 can sometimes spread by airborne transmission. I think we knew that. Uh, it's now official. I don't think this is going to be withdrawn. It came out and it was withdrawn, came out, withdrawn. I don't think it's going to be withdrawn again. And basically, there is evidence under certain conditions, people with COVID-19 have infected others who are more than six feet away. This occurred in, in closed spaces that had inadequate ventilation. So again, Bringing everyone together in a room where there's not good ventilation, um, uh, airborne spread is possible and it's probably not safe. So um, this is an important change in CDC directives. So where are we? I didn't do the good, bad, and the ugly because I, I, I think I ran through that when I showed you the movie scene last week, those of you saw it. But this is where we are. The Midwest has rapid increase in new cases. They're, they are driving a continued United States epidemic. And the public health measures required to deal with it have not happened yet in many of those states. We now have many members of the White House staff and Congress who are infected. There's no national plan to combat the pandemic with consistent public health measures other than to accelerate vaccine development and release. We are entering cold weather season for much of the country. More people are going to be indoors. And as you saw, now there, there's definite airborne spread. They're, we're going to accelerate the spread of the virus um, with the cold weather season and coming indoors. However, vaccine clinical trials continue. The data look great. Very likely there'll be several potential vaccines late this year, and my bet for use in early 2020, 2021 that have efficacy in high-risk groups. So I think um, we have a tough six months ahead of us for the winter. We can do it. Um, New England, Connecticut has managed this once before. We're gonna manage it again just fine. Uh, but we're gonna need to continue to be vigilant even though we're tired and discouraged with it. And we will be able to keep our death rate to a minimum if we do that. The vaccines are gonna work, I'm pretty confident seeing the data that I've seen so far. I think we'll have several options and we're going to need carefully as pediatricians need to look carefully as this moves forward at what vaccine eventually gets tested in children and what makes the most sense for safety and efficacy in children. I think the initial vaccines in my view will be centered on high risk adults most likely and there have not been many children in the clinical trials so far. With that, I'm going to wish you um, a great weekend and uh, we are ready to have uh, our next group talking about the Medical Legal Partnership Update. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, John, uh, for always uh, an outstanding presentation with new information. Very, very practical. We'll have time for questions at the end. And uh, now I'm going to ask um, uh, Jay Cyclic and Patricia Morell to, from the Children's uh, Center for Children's Advocacy to uh, tell us uh, a little bit about the uh, uh, the latest on COVID-19 immigrant care legal repercussions for the state's pediatric population. Just briefly on the medical legal partnership, uh, and, and we, we are part of the medical legal partnership. It's a project that I believe started some, sometime around 2000, and it was Connecticut's first medical legal collaboration, and the second of its kind in the U.S. Uh, it's truly a national leader. Uh, I worked with Jay extensively now for many, many years, even before I became chair. And they provide a, a legal intervention and they work with partners to address the healthcare disparities and children at risk. And so I, I'm really proud of, of the work that they do. And, and uh, they obviously focus on low-income communities to improve access to care and, and reduce social and environmental factors that 
that uh, affect their healthcare and their overall well-being in the community. So uh, I congratulate them for the work that they do. Uh, uh, Jay uh, has been a champion for change, and uh, I can always rely on him to call him when we need uh, some interventions on behalf of children. So uh, Jay and Patricia, I'm going to pass it on to you, and, uh, and then we'll have time for questions at the end. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Juan. Um, I very much appreciate that introduction. And uh, on behalf of Patricia and me, um, we are uh, delighted to be here and pleased to provide an update on our medical legal partnership work and specifically in a couple of areas uh, regarding um, the legal update um, that is an adjunct, obviously, to Dr. Schreiber's um, update on the clinical side of COVID-19. Uh, next slide, please, Liz. <clears throat> um, we've been doing this work, as uh, Dr. Salazar said, for over 20 years now, 20 and a half, actually. Um, and we were the first real true collaboration in the United States. Connecticut Children's has been extraordinarily supportive um, through the years, and uh, especially Dr. Salazar and his colleagues um, Dr. Zalneritis, the residency program, and um, we are truly uh, partners in that goal of improving children's health outcomes, those who are really most vulnerable and most at risk. Today, Patricia and I want to talk about uh, a couple of things. I'm going to pass the, uh, the mic over to Patricia, and she's going to focus on one of our core areas, which is uh, immigrant children's justice. Uh, she'll describe a little bit about that, but um, she is an extraordinary resource and a wonderful attorney um, who has really taken this issue and run with it. Uh, and will describe a little bit about how COVID-19 has affected the immigrant uh, population, immigrant pediatric population. Um, and uh, she, and along with our colleague, Bonnie Roswig, whom I know most of you know, at least most of you affiliated with Connecticut Children's, she is our resident Connecticut Children's attorney who handles the day-to-day -day work, and we are uh, truly dedicated with uh, you to work on these issues that affect uh, children who are most at risk. Um, so Patricia has been, um, uh, as I said, an extraordinary resource to our office. She is a staff attorney uh, with our Immigrant uh, Children's Justice Project, uh, and I am going to hand over the mic to her for the next segment. Thank you, Jay. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so I just wanted to first start with like a super basic baseline for you guys um, in regards to uh, the uh, populations, the immigrant, the different immigrant populations that you might see and what their eligibility in terms of access to healthcare, especially during this um, time of COVID when I know healthcare is a big priority to um, many um, in the community. So as a, um, we'll start with the green card holders and permanent residents. As a general rule of thumb, um, there's usually a five-year waiting period before they are eligible to access um, either the, um, the exchange or any kind of health benefits. But there are exceptions. Um, obviously, children and everyone you see, um, there is an exception for them. There's also exceptions if they're, um, and children in terms of immigration is anyone under the age of 21, which I know is a little different for um, state, um, um, for state um, rules. So um, veterans, um, active duties, um, spouses of, um, and their spouses and their children are exempt from the five-year wait. Um, and typically, uh, that's usually probably the population that you will run into under the green card categories. Um, as we know, um, refugees, uh, they obtain their legal status outside the US. So when they arrive, they are usually eligible for all benefits that um, in terms of like income and um, whatever means tested, if they qualify for it, they're eligible for it. So that includes healthcare and um, access to the marketplace. Um, then you have the other categories um, that, um, that obtain actual legal status, which is usually asylum holders or asylees. Um, and these are essentially refugees, but refugees get their status outside the US, whereas asylum seekers do it while they're in the US. 
And so once that is granted, once their asylum is granted, they're treated essentially the same as refugees. There is a small exception for asylum seekers. If they are under the age of 14 and they're seeking asylum and they have a pending application that's been pending for about 180 days, um, they are eligible to um, get health insurance on, um, on a marketplace or um, Husky if they, are, if they qualify for it and so forth. That's a good exception for um, young children. And then the last category, I have um, the VAWA, that's the Violence Against Women's Act and the U visas, which are usually um, victims of crimes that occurred in the US. You can get a special visa for that, that's a U visa. Um, these uh, populations have full access to the marketplace and to healthcare once their statuses are granted. Um, next slide, please. Um, the other category that I think um, that you might run into in terms of um, children are um, visitors. So somebody comes to vacation in the U.S. and they get sick. Um, unfortunately, they will not have access to any benefits because they're meant to be temporary and it's usually short term. So they don't provide um, an avenue for that. Um, however, if they are students, um, whether it's on an F visa or a J visa, an F visa is where you're here for a year or longer, and a J visa is usually short-term, one year sponsored by um, the government. Um, those populations, um, this can be in the high school or at a university level, but either way, um, there's usually a, a built-in provision for mandatory health insurance before they start their school programs. So those populations will likely, um, you can get them health, um, they should have health insurance, um, and if they don't have adequate health insurance, usually within the first 60 days of starting their program, there is a waiver provision where they can um, choose to, um, to drop the mandatory health insurance that they have through their school and obtain uh, appropriate insurance through a marketplace. So for example, if their health insurance through their school program isn't, doesn't adequately cover some kind of um, ailment that they're, uh, that's affecting them or something, they have that 60 days to get the proper type of health insurance they would need for their stay. So that's um, a good thing to remember for that. Um, and then we have the deferred um, categories for immigration. And these are like um, temporary protected status or TPS, which is a big population that um, typically has access to health insurance. Um, they can get it through their employer once they have employment authorization um, and they can participate in the marketplace as well, um, which is very different from um, DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And even though um, they get work authorization and they, they can only get insurance through their employers. So um, they cannot participate in the marketplace, um, unfortunately, and so they're just limited to what their employers provide for them in terms of um, getting the appropriate medical um, coverage for them. And then there's two other categories um, that I think might be relevant to you, and that's the withholding of removal. This is kind of, um, I like, I like to think of it as like, if you don't qualify for asylum, the next category is withholding of removal. If you don't qualify for that, the next step down is the CAT, which is the Convention Against Torture. Um, because, um, because of the way the rules are set up, the US is not allowed to deport anyone that would be um, harmed when they're sent back to their country of origin. So um, the withholding of removal protects people that would, um, would have qualified for an asylum claim, but you know, didn't meet a certain bar, like they filed after a year, which is like one of the bars for asylum or something like that. They would be eligible for something called withholding of removal. And because they are practically in the United States and they can be here indefinitely in this limbo status, they are given access to all qualified benefits that they um, um, qualify for. And um, the withholding of removal has this derivative um, section to it, which means that if a parent is granted it, um, their kids automatically get it. Um, and so um, children with parents with withholding of removal or children with that status on their own can get access to healthcare. Whereas in CAT, um, it has to be per person. 
So, um, but they, if that's granted, they also can get access to healthcare and um, other benefits that um, they qualify for. And of course, the last category are the um, immigrants that are undocumented and they have no type of legal status or deferred status. And unfortunately, they have, uh, don't have access to anything. Um, next slide, please. So on that sense, if you do run into a child um, who has that um, undocumented status and they fit and they're under 21 and they're not married um, and they have been abused or abandoned or neglected by one or both parents, um, chances are they could be eligible for something called special immigrant juvenile status, which is a special immigration status that was created to protect children um, who have been um, victims of abuse and neglect who are in the United States and it helps them normalize their immigration status so that they can, they don't have to go back to their abusive parents um, or neglectful parents. Um, so the three things I always say look out for under 21, unmarried, um, and typically if they're living with one parent, chances are they've probably been abandoned by the other parent or neglected by the other parent. Um, and then obviously if there has been a history of abuse, that counts too. So um, those three things, under 21, unmarried, um, living with one parent, which could indicate abuse, abandonment, or neglect. There's also these other um, factors that they have to qualify, but that's more of the, the legal analysis. Um, they have to be dependent upon the juvenile court or someone appointed by a juvenile court or some are in a state agency, in the control of a state agency. So if they're in DCF care, for example, uh, chances are they probably qualify for this because um, they wouldn't be in DCF care unless there was an issue with um, the parents. Um, and then um, obviously they would also be in the control or in the control of a state agency. And then the last piece is it's not in their best interest to return to their home country, uh, their home country or country of origin. And that's that's a legal analysis that um, a, an attorney can help you determine how to um, frame that. But for the most part, the biggest things to look out for under 21, unmarried, living with a single parent or in DCF care. Um, next slide, please. So how this special immigrant juvenile status works is it's a two-step process. Um, it's the only immigration status that is like this. Um, and you basically have to go through a state court um, to have the child adjudicated that they've been abandoned, they've been neglected or abused by a parent. Um, and because of that, you know, they qualify for the SIJ um, visa. And then the state court issues a predicate order saying that um, they meet all the qualifications for the abuse, the abandonment, the neglect, um, and so forth. And then you take that state court order and that predicate order, and you then apply for um, the immigration benefit with usually USCIS. Um, and at that point, um, when you do the application for the USCIS, um, that's where the benefit starts coming in. So at, as soon um, as they apply and the, um, on the second step and it's pending, they can have access to healthcare, they can have um, Usually they can sometimes get a social, they can get a work permit and so forth. And um, you can then um, begin um, getting the child's immigration status normalized. So for you, as you um, healthcare providers, you're in the front lines, you're gonna see um, a lot of those first um, indicators of like either abandonment, abuse, neglect. So it'd be great if um, you could point them our way um, so we could assess them for a full SIJ. Um, evaluation because this is a really great immigration benefit for undocumented kids, um, especially since it's, it's less discretionary than all other immigration benefits in the sense that if they do get that predicate order in state court, um, then USCIS is required to grant the status um, so long as there's no other um, benefit, there's no other issues with that order, which in other cases it's a discretionary grant. This is almost like a mandatory grant. Um, and next slide. And I just wanted to leave you with a quick summary of, um, I guess, things to look out for and to um, spot when you're working with immigrant um, families, children, um, whatever, um, usually children for you guys. But these are the things that um, could trip up families. And um, in terms of your referrals to other benefits when, um, when you're working with these families, 
be very careful with um, like SNAP and EBT and food stamps and things of that nature. Be careful about applying, uh, sending them to federal housing or um, Section 8 assistance. Um, be careful enrolling them in Medicaid and um, Medicare, um, except for emergency services, um, because that can, um, that's because of COVID, like, you know, emergency services have been expanded to um, immigrant, all immigrants for COVID testing, but typically your child has to be under 21, a pregnant woman or a new mother in terms of to qualify for emergency Medicaid. And then obviously the other um, cash assistance programs. And the reasons I say to be very careful with those is because of um, um, the public charge rule. And then for other, so, but like WIC, CHIP programs, school lunches, you know, shelters and anything funded by a state or local government is usually okay and won't trip up an immigrant family or child in the future. And, and that's all I have for you. All right, thanks Liz. Next slide, please. Thank you, Patricia. Um, I, I wanted to put a pitch in that um, our contact information is at the end. Patricia is a, a resource uh, for the, especially the special immigrant juvenile status issues. And um, we can certainly funnel those questions to her or you can contact her directly. I'm gonna spend about two or three minutes and that's it and open up for questions because I know that's an important part of this process. I was just gonna go right into here three or four things you know about um, the law, the state's reaction to COVID-19 and children in particular, but I couldn't not provide a couple of slides just to talk about how we inherently know, but have, I think, confirmed this issue that COVID-19 has extraordinarily exacerbated health disparities uh, amongst our uh, population, especially population of color. Uh, Liz, next slide, please. So these are data from the Connecticut Health Disparities, uh, Connecticut Health Disparities, from the Connecticut Health Foundation, you probably have seen these, but this was the foundation's publication in January talking about the um, incredible uh, difference, uh, differential in terms of children who are uh, children of color, black children have a five and a half times more likelihood to go to the emergency department than white children for asthma. Um, over the course of a lifetime, the, the almost two to one uh, mortality rate for adults from diabetes Next slide, Liz, please. Um, and most strikingly, the infant mortality rate. Black mothers are more than four times as likely to die before their first birthday, children born to black mothers as white mothers. So these are, these are criteria that, and data that I think we all know, but again, what are we doing to try to stop this as not only as pediatric providers, but as advocates to try to kind of reverse the course of where we've been? Well, the state has tried to do a little bit of this during COVID-19. And here's what we have now, uh, Liz, next slide. Um, what we've done is we've tried to stop, stem the tide of this catastrophic financial crisis that has resulted from unemployment, from the lack of available uh, jobs, um, from um, just this, as we know, this kind of stream of, of the inability to uh, earn in terms of the greater uh, population, 20 something percent unemployment, um, we know that um, the following has been done by the state, and so keep this in mind. And this is reiteration, but I just want to make sure everybody is aware. Um, there is an eviction moratorium through January 1, 2021. Um, that was just extended, so people cannot be evicted, but they can be sued in housing courts. So keep that in mind, but there's a difference. Evictions cannot take place until after January 1, and hopefully that will be extended in January because the housing assistance provided um, which was 10 million initially to landlords and 25 million for eviction prevention. As of September 23, only two families have received assistance um, for financial uh, remuneration or assistance to prevent eviction. Remarkable, but uh, another 25 million was just pumped in, uh, 10 million for mortgage assistance. There was a utility protection moratorium that went through October 1 that is now expired, but the low income protection for everyone begins on November 1, so keep that in mind. As of November 1, most individuals under a certain income level will be protected from utility shutoff. Next slide, please, Liz. 
Um, we know that telehealth services have continued to be expanded and will continue through the pandemic and hopefully beyond. Obviously, many of you are involved in that. Um, we also know that as a result of that, immunizations, vaccinations have declined um, around the country. And um, we know that screenings for developmental, uh, behavioral, cognitive screenings have fell by 44%, et cetera. Visits to dentists, uh, this is CMS data, has plunged by 69%. Next slide, please. Anyway, so that, um, that's really the, the, the bottom line. We, uh, we have seen this kind of increase in the number of people who are affected. Um, we have tried to kind of advocate for increased interventions, including the moratoriums, the utility protection, the increased access to educational opportunity through uh, connectivity and through the ability to, to provide uh, technology to students. Uh, and obviously something we've harped on for years, increasing coverage to undocumented immigrants, which would be the most single most important thing the state could do for uh, individuals under the age of 19 to increase access to care. And that's it. I'm gonna stop there and, and open up for questions. Thank you, uh, Jay and Patricia for a great presentation. And uh, we have uh, about 50 minutes for questions, lots of questions coming in. We'll begin, uh, Jay and Patricia, this was for you. And uh, this is a question that says, hasn't, hasn't the public charge rule been successfully blocked in the state of Connecticut recently? If so, would this new development continue to have negative consequences on referrals to services you mentioned, SNAP, emergency Medicaid, et cetera? So perhaps you can comment on the public charge rule first and, 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 and what the uh, situation is currently with this rule. Okay, thank you. Um, actually, no. So in July, it was, there was an injunction to stop implementing it um, out of um, the California circuit. Um, but recently, in I think it was like September 24th or late in September, the second circuit actually out of New York um, overturned that. And so um, as of September, like towards the end of September, I can't remember the date off the top of my head. I think it was the 24th. Um, it's back in play. And that includes um, nationwide and in New York, Connecticut, Vermont. Um, and so it would affect um, the benefits I told you about, like the supplemental, um, supplemental um, SNAP and EBT and so forth, food stamps and all those are back in play. And so um, just to continue to be careful to make those referrals. Yeah, the, the, the issue really is the public charge rule is complicated. And again, without getting into an immigration um, uh, webinar, um, really we're talking about two systems, the federal system, which involves the ability of someone to adjust their status for immigration purposes and how that could be curtailed by the use of public benefits. The state continues to provide a, a plethora of benefits, I think, as the question implies, because a lot of it involves state money. Um, so a lot of the uh, reimbursement that the federal government usually gives for things like Medicaid and other types of benefits is not available because Congress has curtailed uh, public benefits significantly for immigrants, but the state has chosen to provide those benefits out of its own coffers. But the public charge rule may involve the ability someone later on to adjust their status to um, temporary, from temporary to permanent. And that's where the sticking point is. And that may change after the election, but you know, that obviously remains to be seen. Yeah. Thank you, uh, John. This one is for you. It's a very common, this is from Ken Spiegelman. We're seeing a significant increase in children with cough, cold, URI symptoms affecting all family members. Many are getting mixed messages from their daycare employers and schools. What is needed for return? Uh, please review if you, if you may. Sure, um, so the question is if, if you, a child gets URI and cold and cough symptoms, uh, and they're sent home from school, you know, what's sort of the triage mechanism? I think um, what I would do, uh, and, and I th think certainly this is where the Department of Education and their flowchart suggests, if there's a definite COVID exposure or the symptoms are consistent with COVID, um, uh, the, that kid needs to be tested. And uh, certainly since we know the symptoms of COVID are rather um, nonspecific, that means many children probably should be tested. Now, I will say, if there's an alternative explanation for the illness, rapid strep is positive, rapid flu is positive, uh, there's a clearly bulging tympanic membrane, 
then I don't think you need to test the kid. And I think you have an alternative explanation. And then what would happen is 24 hours after fever and when the child is better, symptomatology is better, and there's no fever for 24 hours, they could return. Uh, ditto, if a kid has a URI and you test them and it's negative, then it's 24 hours after their symptoms are better, there's no fever and they would go back. If they're positive, there's a whole flow um, that's different than that. And then you move to the 10 days after the, uh, after the symptoms began uh, and, and then they would return. So I think there, that is available now on the Department of Education and DPH website um, that I showed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but in general, to your, to your question, um, you know, if you're in doubt, test. And you don't have an explanation and the child's ill with fever and a URI, probably you're gonna to need to test the kid. If there's no other explanation you can come up with. Uh, Jay and Patricia, this is a shout out from, from Daniel Warren. Um, shout out for all your work to add prophylaxis to the reproductive care and treatment legislature for youth in Connecticut. So it's a, uh, it's a thank you from, from our HIV team for you. So that, um, let me, let me move on to uh, additional questions for a lot of questions for John uh, this morning. Uh, since asymptomatic people are now being encouraged to be tested, how much of the resurgence includes asymptomatic people, John? Uh, you know, the, the issue of is the resurgence for more testing or is the resurgence uh, from new cases? And the answer is a little bit of both. We're certainly testing more, but when you look at the percent, like the Massachusetts curve I showed you, the percent of people tested who are positive is going up. Those are true. That means you have an increased um, incidence of new cases. So the answer is a little bit of both, but there's definitely an increase in cases. It's not just that we're testing more people who are asymptomatic. For you, if, if you have an uh, illegal uh, immigrant child, uh, adolescent, that needs to be tested, somebody deems that needs to be tested for COVID, what's, what's there, uh, is there a possibility they can get tested? Or are there sites open for them? Do you know this? If we lose um, I, I uh, Patricia, you can weigh in on this too. I mean, uh, what what we usually recommend for um, um, for individuals who uh, without documentation um, is to go to a federally qualified health center um, because that is the kind of universe of of acceptability. They'll uh, they'll treat all patients regardless of coverage. There may be a sliding scale, um, or they may be absorbing this based on the amount of reimbursement they get from CMS uh, because of their status as the elevated status in reimbursement for FQHCs. They're also, and Patricia can weigh on this probably better than I, community um, groups that are specifically geared toward providing that information uh, and resources for the undocumented community. So. Um, those in uh, those those groups, those um, kind of grassroots organizations, usually have access points to testing sites. But the FQHC route is usually um, our go-to sites for undocumented um, uh, children. Patricia, any any thoughts on that? Yes. Um, so actually, Jay is absolutely right. Um, and um, just piggybacking off what you said, one particular group that I know will. Um, has been very active on this front in terms of COVID, in terms of access to healthcare. That would could be a really great benefit for any provider that's kind of stumped and stuck um, is the Connecticut Students for a Dream. They're across the state. Um, they have offices in like Bridgeport, New Haven, and um, up in Hartford. Um, and they're pretty active all over. And so that would be a good place. And they would have all the little ins and outs for undocumented um, kids because a lot of the, even the members of it are undocumented. And so they would have um, good intel on where to go. Thanks, Patricia. And somebody corrected me. It's undocumented, not illegal. So I appreciate the, uh, the comment. Uh, the, uh, the next one is uh, about airborne transmission. Can you return? Uh, well, you can't return to the slide right now, but it appears as if heavy breathing with exercise or singing was the major airborne spread route. Uh, I think that's correct. Um, I think singing in particular uh, has been shown to be high risk and, and particularly inside. Uh, and that's where the airborne spread, maybe we can go back to the slide. We're gonna to try to do that for you, the CDC slide. There it is, go, uh, you just passed it. Go down to airborne, CDC airborne spread warning. What, next one, down, perfect, that's it. There you go. So, so the answer is uh, heavy breathing would be, for example, working out in a gym, 
which, uh, it, which is uh, an issue with no mask. And, and if there's not good air exchange, singing. So you're absolutely right. Uh, those are the areas of concern. Okay, thanks. Uh, uh, Nilda Fernandez, uh, uh, one of our uh, wonderfully experienced uh, case managers, social workers in the HIV program, states that Community Health Center in 76 New Burton Avenue in Hartford is offering free COVID-19 and flu vaccine for children and adults who may be uh, under or uh, uninsured. So thank you, Nilda, for that. That's a very important message. Well, I think the, the issue is if there's a known exposure, this is why there's a 14-day quarantine, and it's very important. And I think the challenge is, and this is where the testing issues can become, give you a false sense of security. Um, remember, that test means that you're negative that day. The test was done. And if you're in the window of incubation and it's 14 days and you were exposed within that, you can still become COVID positive. So this is why um, the 14-day uh, quarantine is so important after exposure because a single test isn't going to really solve the problem. In addition, I'll give you an example. The state now says you can get tested 72 hours before coming back from a hot zone. If that's negative, you're coming in okay. We test again at Connecticut Children's because we know, again, that could be within the window of exposure. And we test again at seven days to try to make sure we can catch anyone who might, might uh, end up being positive later. And remember that 13-year-old in the outbreak uh, during a family gathering had been tested and was negative. And two days later, it was positive. And I think we're seeing the same thing in some of the White House spread, where there were negative tests at that moment, and there was spread of COVID. So, uh, you know, that's why the quarantine is so important, 14-day quarantine. Thank you, John. And um, a couple of uh, sort of public health announcements or public service announcements. Arthur, uh, Dr. Blummer says, we're all giving flu vaccine to anyone under 19 years of age because it's supplied by the state um, uh, for free, regardless of insurance. So thank you for that. Uh, Thanks, I appreciate Arthur. that. Yeah, it is. Um, and then uh, also all the, CHC, all the CHC sites are offering that free. Um, and uh, so thank you for, for making that comment. Uh, Dr. Zemel asks a question. What about flying to see your new grandchild? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, all of us are challenged with these very important issues or, or saying goodbye to a loved one as they die. You know, how do you do this? I do not have the right answer for you. I can say that flying has improved but the data suggests that it's more of a risk than not flying. Uh, you cannot control all of the variables as you fly. There will, may very well be somebody who's infected, who doesn't have their mask properly on, who's touching things. As much as the airlines are getting better, Delta, for example, has blocked out all their middle seats. Uh, they've improved the HEPA filters, but they're flying some pretty old airplanes, and some of those HEPA filters even improved aren't so good. So flying's a risk, but I think it's less than it was. Uh, you know, driving in a car and not leaving the car, uh, you got to go to the bathroom, you have to eat. I mean, there is no risk-free way of getting to loved ones, particularly in states that have a lot of community spread. So I think um, these are very challenging questions that every family is facing. If you can avoid it, don't travel to hot spots if you can avoid it. If it's unavoidable, I think probably driving and not leaving your car as much as you can is going to be safer than flying. But the data comparing the two does not exist. Uh, it's nine o'clock. It just had uh, two comments, and uh, and Jay and Patricia, if you can just uh, you know very briefly tell us how people can connect with you if they have questions on, on this very important topic. Uh, if you can just give us a, and we can also send it via email. But go ahead, uh, Jay. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, of course. Um, well, our medical legal partnership um, uh, contact information is um, uh, both Patricia and my contact information um, were on the last slide uh, regarding our emails. Um, our medical legal partnership uh, information, uh, our, lawyer, our colleague Bonnie Rosswig is actually on the Connecticut Children's uh, email system. So it's Bonnie Roswig, R-O-S-W-I-G. She's our in-house lawyer at Connecticut Children's. Patricia is available um, uh, right there as Liz was um, good timing uh, to put our contact information there. Patricia is um, located in our Bridgeport office, um, but is available obviously by email, um, by phone and, um, um, and most, Folks in the Connecticut Children's System have my cell, so you can always text me as well, and I can pass along anything to Patricia for an immediate um, return. 
and, and our Center for Children's Advocacy website, cca-ct.org, has our, all our information on COVID-19 updates regarding not only health, but juvenile justice, child welfare, education especially. That's obviously a huge point and other items. Thank you, Jay. And I'm going to pass it on to John for some uh, words of wisdoms and how to, do, how to protect yourself individually during this next two, three months. Uh, that's a great question. So I, I think um, the reality is we know what to do. We know we're going to need to stay physically separate from people who um, are strangers or people who uh, maybe even are related but are coming from another part of the country are not actually living with you in the house week after week. So physical separation. Wear your mask. I've shown over and over again uh, the data as it comes forward that masks work. They reduce the likelihood, good masks, not a bandana, but we went through some of the masks that work, surgical masks, double cloth, um, prevent, uh, reduce the likelihood of you being uh, infected from droplets and reduce the likelihood of someone near you uh, from getting infected. So physical distance and wear your mask and avoid risk situations as best you can. Um, you know, should you go, uh, the restaurants are open. Uh, should you go to a crowded restaurant if you're 70 years old? Absolutely not. Um, you know, if you're above 65, should you get on an airplane? Probably not. So I think you're going to manage your own risk, physical distancing, wear a mask, and don't go, if, unless you, you absolutely have to, don't go to hotspots and try to avoid uh, risk situations. For your children, same rules. They're in school, but do their best to follow the rules in the school, do your best when they're home, not to have them involved in any risk-taking behavior of hanging around a lot of kids without masks and, and going to a party and things like that. So I think we know what to do. Um, the question is going to be we're going to need to kind of ramp up that effort level again as cases increase and we head into the holidays. We can do it. And the light at the end of the tunnel, I will absolutely say you by this time next year, this is in the rearview mirror for all of us. So we will get through this. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone. Have a, a good holiday weekend. Be safe, and we'll see you again uh, on Tuesday for Grand Rounds and then on Friday for this session once again. Take care. Bye-bye.